0: Welcome to the 199th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Rutherford. Stay tuned for my interview with Mike Cole, fantasy author and author of the Shadow Ops series. Stay tuned for the interview.
1: Hello, it's Paul Kemp, host of the App Guide podcast. Let me tell you about a tool that I'm involved with. It's called It stands for I Love Your Stories, and it's a tool to help creative writers get out of the habit of writer's block. Now, don't just take my word for it. Bloomberg and The Next Web have both written about this, and a lot of people are giving us awesome feedback. This is on Twitter. Jack says, I love, love, love the idea of what you've built. I can't wait to actually jump in. As a struggling writer, I really do need this. Heath Armstrong, a podcaster, says, dude, I love eyeless So go and check out ILS com com and if you go to forward/ph slash ph, you'll get a 50% discount as a listener to this podcast even though it's free for the first 3,000 words so thank you very much for listening as com, and go and start writing something awesome today
0: welcome back to the reading and writing podcast my guest today is Mike Cole Mike's latest novel Gemini Sale has just been published. Gemini Cell is the fourth book in Cole's Shadow Ops series of novels that also include Shadow Ops Control Point, Shadow Ops Breach Zone and Shadow Ops Fortress Frontier. Mike Cole, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Great. Well, can you read a page or two from your new novel Gemini Cell?
2: Yeah, I'd be glad to. Um, I just want to set it up for you guys. The protagonist in Gemini Cell, and I'm, this is not a spoiler here, he is killed and uh, he believes his wife and child are killed early on in the book. So I'm going to read that uh, passage to you. So suffice to say he's a Navy SEAL, He's his identity has been discovered, and the bad guys that he's been fighting have broken into his home and he's fighting them in his home. So let me read this uh, scene. It's a little dark and then uh, you'll get a really good feeling for both the tone of the book and the tone of my writing in general. Here we go. A high shriek came to him from a few feet away. Daddy. Schweitzer allowed his focus to crack, his eyes to come off the gun sights and toward the sound. Patrick stood awake in the doorway to his room, his footed pajamas showered with dust, his blonde hair a tousled mess, his face pink and eyes shining with tears. Daddy, he shrieked again. As one man... The enemy turned toward him. Schweitzer's heart leapt into his throat. Patrick, no, get back in. The stuttering salvo resumed. The muzzles of the enemy guns flashing. Patrick flew back from the doorway, snatched by an invisible hand. A streak of blood traced the floor, an arrow pointing the way he had gone. The door to his room danced, ripped off its hinges and spinning in the air, blotting out Schweitzer's view of his son. And then the door covered Patrick, burning. Rocking on its edges, his son screamed no more. Schweitzer screamed for him. His vision swam. The pain of his wounds vanished. He leapt to his feet, shrugging off the wreckage of the stairway, sliding on the floor, slick with his own blood. He's okay, his mind told him. If you can get to him fast enough, you can save him. A part of him knew it couldn't be true, that no four-year-old could survive that many rounds. He silenced that part. Another part came alive. That other part propelled him to the burning door over his son, firing madly, all attempted accuracy forgotten. He snarled, the world disappearing. The room, the smoke, the enemy, all gone. Nothing existed other than the red tunnel that encompassed the ground Schweitzer had to cover to reach Patrick's side. He ran as if through molasses, Patrick's door growing no closer. Something struck him in his side, his shoulder. He stumbled, sank, kept going. He'll be okay. You've still got time for CPR. He heard a shriek and allowed himself to look over his shoulder. The balcony to their loft bedroom sat above the staircase, offering Sarah a clear view of Patrick's doorway. She called her son's name, leaping out over the ragged hole left by the now burning ruin of the staircase. The guns moved toward the ceiling, spitting rounds into the recessed can lights, showering all with plaster dust, sparks and shattered glass. Sarah plummeted, slamming into one of the enemy. Something bright and metal flashed in her hand. Schweitzer blinked and realized it was the heavy, hook-bladed knife she used to cut canvas. The lacquered wooden handle was probably two inches long, the blade scarcely longer. A mother wolf, she bore the man to the floor, plunging the flimsy blade into his neck above the collar of his body armor, covering himself with a bright spray of arterial blood. Oh, baby, I knew you wouldn't stay still. The man ride away from her. Her finger his finger clamped on the trigger, the guns uselessly spitting rounds into the ceiling. Sarah screamed and stabbed him again and again. He shuddered beneath her. Her target dispatched she looked up, eyes lighting on Patrick's door, not seeing Schweitzer before it. She got to her feet, began to run for her son. A bullet slammed into her, lifting her into the air, throwing her back into the ruins of the staircase. She spun in the air, twitching, eyes narrowing in shock and agony. Blood misted the air as Sarah disappeared, vanishing into the burning splinters, her body limp. For the first time in his life, Schweitzer was frozen in the midst of battle. The corpse of his wife before him, the corpse of his child behind him. Which way to turn? No way. There was no way. They're not okay. They're not okay. They're not okay. The image of the refrigerated container of corpses flashed in his mind, but this time Patrick and Sarah's still blue-lipped bodies lay on the steel racks. A lot of corpses in one day, huh? More hammer blows, this time in his gut. Schweitzer took a few steps backward, tried to hitch a breath. Couldn't. The red tunnel turned gray, narrowed. He couldn't see Sarah. He tried to turn to Patrick's door, couldn't move. He looked down. His chest was smeared with blood. The skin blistered, dotted dotted with splinters. Below it, he could make out the jagged, yellow-white protrusion of his sternum, hovering over the gap that had once been his abdomen. The curve of his ribcage held the ribbons of his abdominal muscles, hanging in flaps over the dark recesses of his gut, laid open by what must have been a considerable volume of fire. Long, gray-blue ropes had uncoiled from inside, draping down to his knees. He watched, numb, as they slid further. Sarah! Sarah, I'm hurt! His mouth worked. He felt something warm and sticky sliding down the corner. The tunnel narrowed further, his vision blurring, the edges of what little he could see going indistinct. He didn't have time for this. He had to get to Patrick, but he couldn't move. One of the enemies stepped into his field of vision. He was still splattered with his comrade's brains, the last of the original four who'd come in. He stepped close to Schweitzer, intimately close, eyes slits of rage. Schweitzer could smell the sour stink of his breath through his balaclava. He was a coffee drinker. Smoker, too. We knocked on the right door, asshole, the man said. Schweitzer could feel the cold firmness of a gun barrel shoved underneath his chin. He tried to punch the man, smack the gun down, fight anything. He couldn't move. Sarah, bang. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Thanks. I, unfortunately, I have two German shepherds I'm uh, house-sitting for, uh, dog-sitting for that were not cooperating. Okay. I, had to, I had to retrieve a bone from one of them in the midst of it. Not uh, a problem. But, <laughs> but that gives you a good feeling of... Uh, of sort of the the combat intensity. And the story of Gemini Cell is a reanimated Schweitzer, the man you just watched die, trying to get back or find out what happened to his wife and son.
0: That's great. I was actually just going to ask you, if if someone hasn't heard about Gemini Cell yet, how, how would you describe your new novel?
2: Um, well, this is the thing is that the the original Shadow Ops trilogy I would describe as um, if Harry Potter joined the Navy Seals instead of going off to Hogwarts. It's you know, the military very, very uh, authentic, very, very tactical level military stories that have magic in them. Um but Gemini Cell is actually designed specifically to be it's a prequel. It takes place many years before control point and while it's set in the same universe it's designed to be a new entry point for readers, so you don't have to have read anything else I've written to to get it to start with me here
0: do you, that's great Well, do you remember the initial idea or impetus for Gemini Cell?
2: Sure uh, you know it's funny it's the only time this has ever happened to me. I was running in Prospect Park. And, uh, someone had made a joke to me years ago about a zombie seal. Of course they meant a seal like the animal in a circus. And I, I don't, you know, weird thoughts will run into your mind when you're, when you're working out and you're trying to distract yourself from how bad it sucks. Um, so I was having a tough run and I was thinking zombie seal, zombie seal. And of course my brain did the dance from the animal seal to Navy seal. Mm -hmm. And the entire, it's never happened to me before the entire book, uh, came into my mind in 30 seconds, um, and I, I wish that would happen with every novel. Of course, there was a lot of work to be done after that to get it to a, to an actual readable cogent story, but um, the idea came full formed uh, based on a, an offhand comment someone had made while I was
0: running. That's great. So did you write it down once you got back home?
2: Yeah, of course. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm an uber architect when I write. A lot of people I know are pantsers versus plotters. They sort of sit down and let the story evolve organically. Um, But I plan and architect and usually have like a hundred page outline before I start writing anything in a novel. So yes, uh, and there were many, many months of outlining and refining and getting inputs on on that structure before I started writing.
0: Great. Well, I know you have a military background yourself, and you've done three tours in Iraq, and you've worked as a security contractor. I'm curious, while you were serving in the military, did were you writing at, at that point, or did you know you wanted to be a writer?
2: Yeah. Oh, no. I've, wanted to, I've known I wanted to be a writer since I was little. Um, yeah, I absolutely was writing. Um, in fact, uh, I, I remember uh, Peter V. Brett, who is a fantastic fantasy author and my best friend. He uh, His Demon Cycle series on Del Rey, if, you have, if your readers or listeners haven't read it, I just can't recommend it enough. And I'm not just saying that because we're close. Um, I was emailing him these long, long emails um, because a lot of, of what I did in Iraq is sometimes waiting around for ops to go off. And uh, so I would email him uh, and we would be emailing back and forth about the novel. And then I would go home or go to my hooch, and in the like, you know, I would maybe have three hours to sleep, and I'd wind up using an hour of that, or an hour, even an hour and a half of that, and sometimes all of that, in working on the edits that we were proposing back and forth.
0: And at that point, were you working on your first novel? Oh
2: uh, Yeah, I well, it was my fourth novel, okay. um, but was my first novel that got published. At the time, it was called Latent, but it later became Control Point.
0: So so tell me about those first three. What um, Was that just a process to get to the fourth one that was publishable?
2: I mean, this is the thing is, yes, uh, is I had to learn. And I I will say this. um, One of my big challenges in life is that I rush and that um, I have a tough time, you know, locking in and doing it right. And when you don't do it right, you have to do it twice. I think that if I had been more focused on instead of trying to write short stories or trying to go to conventions or trying to market myself on just learning the craft of being writing a great novel, that I would have gotten my first book deal sooner. But, um, you know, so I wound up writing, you know, two books that have the kernel of something good in them, but, uh, you know, basically had to be thrown away and will never be revived. And then I wrote the very first book I ever wrote, which was Latent. And that I wound up rewriting so completely that I considered a different book. That is the book that became Control Point that sold.
0: Gotcha. Well, well, I know that you've written very honestly on your blog about post-traumatic stress disorder, and you've also written about PTSD in your fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, for civilians who may be listening without a military background, is there is there a core message about PTSD that you would like to convey?
2: Yes, absolutely. And one of the things I, I do want to mention about Gemini Cell is that it is absolutely a bald-faced allegory for PTSD. I mean, Schweitzer is reanimated, but he's not alive. He's still dead, and he has to find a way to reconnect with his, with his world. Um, and when you're dead, that's a permanent change and you can't be in the world the same way. And that is definitely a message that I would wish people would understand about PTSD is that people try to think of it as a pathology, like, like cancer, a disease that you can, you know, that it's a strict, that's a simple thing in your life that's broken and that could be fixed potentially. But I don't believe it's like that. I think that PTSD is a permanent shift in worldview. It's a change in perspective. It it's, the way you are in the world is different, and it's different forever. And one of the things that was has been very, very helpful for me, and I wish that more people who had PTSD would try to or, – or rather people who are attempting to treat it or assist people with PTSD would try to, to work towards is instead of attempting to fix a thing that isn't broken – attempting to help people set new goals and find a new way to be in the world. And for me, you know, I quit my government job in D.C. I moved to New York City. I became a writer out here. Like reinventing myself was a huge piece of of uh, of coping.
0: Sure, sure. Well, well. as part of that, do you think your your fiction writing has helped you in dealing with PTSD at all?
2: Um, but yes, but not in the way you think. Like I, I it's I, I wasn't I don't work out my issues in the writing. It's more that the, the goal of being a writer. So I think before I went to war, you know, I had different kinds of goals, get married, have a house, you know, sort of all of these normal guideposts that I'd been raised with. And post PTSD, I had to find a way to matter in the world that meant like my life was significant because when I was in Iraq, every little thing I did made the universe reverberate. And now I'm supposed to be happy with paying off a mortgage and sitting in a cubicle for eight hours a day. No way. Um, I just felt so bored and useless and, um, uh, insignificant, which, which is one of the things that when, again, that when people are talking about treating PTSD, they don't talk about that. They talk about flashbacks and being scared in crowds and the dramatic, sexy stuff. They don't talk about trouble finding meaning in, in the things that most people find meaning in. Um, and then being, and then everyone looking at you being like, what's wrong with you? Why don't you, why aren't you happy? Mm -hmm. Um, so for me, being a writer gave me something to live for, something to aspire to, something to, to be like, I am still making the universe reverberate. I am still significant in the way I was in war. And um, once I made that shift, I began to attract people, you know, as both friends and, you know, in relationships that were like that, too. And I found my a new circle and a new way forward. So... Yeah, writing has been really significant for me, but not in the way I think most people would expect.
0: Sure. And, and what you just described, I mean, is that, is that kind of the adrenaline rush of that, you know, most, uh, you know, most jobs and most careers are not going to have the adrenaline rush if you're preparing for an op in, in Iraq and, and everything that goes with that?
2: Yes. I mean, but the thing is, I still get the adrenaline rush. I'm still with a major police department out here. And um, I was, uh, and also was doing patrol law enforcement with the Coast Guard, which is actually gun on hip, pulling boats over and, you know, boarding them. So there was plenty of adrenaline in my life. It was less that. And it was more that when you're at war, man, the stakes are high. Like every decision you make every day you go to work, like, People are living or dying, you know, you're, you're changing the course of nations. Like it's in this incredible sense of mattering in this, inc- in this intense, intense, intense way. Um, and, uh, then you go back and, you know, you didn't put your cover sheet on your TPS report, you know, and you're like, are you, are you freaking kidding me? Really? You know, I'll never forget. I came back, um, from Iraq and, um, I threw out all my clothes cause they were all full of, um, camel spider and camel cricket eggs. Uh, and, uh, um, I came home and, and I had clothes here, but I don't know. I just, I guess I I already knew early on, I wanted to reinvent myself. So I went to go buy clothes and I went to this clothing store and I told the attendant, um, the guys working there, look, you know, you do this for a living. I I, I don't know anything about fashion. I have this much money to spend. I'm going to go in the fitting room, hand me stuff and I'm going to put it on. I'm going to come out and you're going to tell me if I look good. Um, and then I'll buy it. And, he was fretting over the fit of a t-shirt, like really getting into it. And like, which is really impressive because he took his job seriously. And I was standing there looking at him and they had this incredible feeling of loneliness and isolation and thinking, really, like, really, you know how the t-shirt fits. That's important. And then, uh, my celebratory dinner, when I got back, my, my, um, fiance at the time, um, who split, uh, because every time I came back from Iraq, I was a lot less fun. Uh, she, she took me out to this restaurant and it was like a super fancy restaurant and they had like a butter flights and this guy, the waiter is talking about the correct butter pairings with the right kind of bread. And I'm standing there like, man, like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, you don't, you don't have something, you know, to do that. Like this is this is a thing you actually are putting time into thinking about and then hating myself for judging him because like he's just doing his job, you know, right, and, doing right. it, and doing it well. But I just realized, and then of course, this incredible sense of emptiness and loneliness. Like I am now cut off from being able to find significance in enjoying something like a butter pairing or the correct fit of a t-shirt. Um, and people in peacetime societies do that all the time. So uh, that's more what I'm talking about.
0: Gotcha, gotcha. Well, I, I'm curious, I mean, um, and obviously you can, you know, choose not to answer this if, if that's the case. But um, given the, the um, and I, I realize that this is getting away from, from your novels, but, but given the fact that you did three tours in Iraq, um, as, a, as a civilian and now, you know, in your life now, um, do you have any thoughts in terms of in terms of how things ha- have turned out um, geopolitically? No,
2: I'm not, I'll answer it. I'll answer it. Um, I mean, I'm, you know, it's funny. I'm I writing a blog post about this. Um, I'm, I'm horrified. Uh, and the reality of it is, is that ISIS has regained Everything that I fought for, um, and that friends of mine died for, has absolutely been rolled back. There's just no way; it's irrefutable. Um, and you know, we sent 1500 more people there um, uh, that are now going to have to go deal with that. Um, I think the balance of power has shifted. The sum total of what happened in Iraq, Iraq, our intervention in Iraq, is that we've just handed near hegemony in the region over to Iran. It was a dedicated mm-hmm. enemy of us. Um, so you know, it's awful. Um, and I killed people, uh, in support of that mission. Um, and I wrestle with that all the time. And the only way I can face it is when I remind myself that at the strategic level, this is an unmitigated disaster, not just for us, but for the world. But at the tactical level, um, I saved people's lives. Um, and I, I put people in the dirt that, the, would burn set girls on fire for learning to read. Right. right. Um, and um, and that's something. Um, you know, look, I don't really believe in heaven, but um, if I did, I would definitely have some answering to do when I got there on the other side. Um, I've tried very, very hard to, you know, in my police work and in my work with the Coast Guard and in the way I'm in the world to – you know, that scene at the end of private saving private Ryan, um, when Tom Hanks, character is shot at, you know, bleeding out and he turns to private Ryan played by Matt Damon and says, earn this. Do you remember that? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I try to earn it. Uh, I try to earn my air, you know, um, and try to make right on those things. Um, but when I'm being honest, I know I never can.
0: Gotcha. Um, Okay, well, well let's let's get let's get back to the fiction, which is you know what we're talking about. So, so given your success with with your your novels to date, what advice would you have for aspiring writers who may uh, be know, listening?
2: Yeah. So, and it's the same advice I always give. Um, mm-hmm. Is uh, there is no magic key. Aspiring writers always want some kind of like magic key, some end run, um, some secret piece of advice. It doesn't exist. Um, all writing is is it's just like tiling your bathroom it's just like cleaning your house it's just like you know uh doing your homework you know it sucks you don't want to deal with it you'd rather be playing video games i don't care how good a writer you are i don't care how much you love writing it sucks it's a job and um you need to lock it up am i allowed to curse on your show yeah yeah you need to lock it the fuck up you need to pull up your big boy or big girl pants and you need to sit your ass down and you need to you need to write and you need to you need to you need to except the fact that you are going to write a lot, a lot, a lot. And the vast, vast, vast majority of the stuff you write, you will have to throw away. And the odds are very long of you ever getting published. Um, but, that, but the price of admission is the work. And, the, and you cannot control the state of the market. You cannot control luck. You cannot control whether or not you're talented and who the hell even knows what that means. Um, the only thing you can control is the work. So you need to work your ass off. And I hear a lot of writers that when they come to ask me questions on panels when I'm speaking, those questions are not um, craft questions. They're almost always marketing questions or networking questions or inspiration questions or routine questions. Craft, 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 craft is the only thing that matters. Uh, If you write an amazing book, everything else will take care of itself. So focus on writing an amazing book and read critically. Read your favorite authors. And don't just get lost in the story. Try to see what they're doing and 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 why it works.
0: Great advice. Well, are there novels or nonfiction books that you've read in the last year or two that made an impact on you and that you would recommend? Oh, tons.
2: Uh, we would be here all day. Okay. So <laughs> let me give one fiction novel and one nonfiction self-help book. Um, so the fiction novel is, again, I t- was telling you guys about Peter V. Brett, Um uh, full disclosure, he is my best friend. But he is also my biggest writing influence. Um, and his first novel, The Warded Man, is, in my opinion, one of the great works of fantasy. And it's also a technically incredibly proficient work in terms of the plotting, in terms of the structure, in terms of the pacing, in terms of the prose styling, in terms of the character arcs. Read The Warded Man. That is your first you know, and most indelible lesson. The uh, only self-help book I've ever read that is worth the paper it's printed on is written by Stephen Pressfield, uh, and it's called The War of Art. And Stephen Pressfield is a great historical fiction writer, but The War of Art talks about writing process, and it's practically a pamphlet. You can read it in a couple of hours. But what he does is he anthropomorphizes resistance uh, to d- getting shit done, and and allows you to rage against it and fight against it. And he also embraces the value of misery and the idea of misery as a productive engine, and as the crucible as a place where iron gets made and forged into steel. Um, it's a really, really fabulous book, and it's a really short read, and, I, and I'm i not exaggerating to say
0: it changed my life. That's great. Well, what are you writing now? Can you discuss your work in progress?
2: Yeah, of course. Uh, I have two works in progress, actually. As soon as I get off this podcast, uh, I am going to go back to my rewrite edit of Javelin Rain, which is the sequel to Gemini Cell, which will be coming out uh, this time next year. And uh, I am also working on a uh, what I call grimdark, and I'm using air quotes there, which is grimdark is sort of a subgenre of fantasy that's very, very bleak with very flawed characters. George R. R. Martin's Song of Ice and Fire has been considered grimdark. But it's a medieval fantasy with a 13 year old gay girl protagonist, female protagonist. Um, and it's totally outside my wheelhouse. And I'm really excited about it because I've always tried to push the envelope and make each one of my books different from the last. And I'm really, uh, it's very important to me to prove to myself that I'm a writer with a capital W. I don't just do military stuff mm-hmm. and that what success I've enjoyed is not a gimmick based on my, on military authenticity and really has to do with the quality of my writing. So uh, it's not sold, but my agents uh, are excited about it. I'm going into the sixth draft on it and I'm you know, I, I'm keep, I keep hoping to get it to market, um, but it's not going out to market until, meaning trying to sell it to publishers, until it's absolutely the best it can be. And uh, done right is always better than done fast, so it may be a while.
0: That's great. Uh, we look forward to seeing that. So um, where can people find you online if they're interested in learning more about you and your books?
2: Um, well, first of all, I should say I answer all my emails. So if anybody wants to get in touch, it's mike at mikecole.com. And I want to point out my name is spelled M-Y-K-E-C-O-L-E. Um, you can uh, go to my website at www.mikecole.com. Follow me on Twitter at, at mikecole, all spelled the same way, or at Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Mike Cole.
0: Great. Well, again, I've been speaking with Mike Cole. His latest novel, Gemini Cell, has just been published. It's in bookstores now, or you can grab the ebook. So do that. And Mike, thanks for doing this interview. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, sure.